You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. This fall, the Mars rover Curiosity beamed back some bad news to planet Earth. I don't know if you saw that in the New York Times. They said, um, no methane up there. And it's not so much that we're up on Mars trying to find methane. We're there searching for life. And uh, it turns out that methane is a good marker for life, which I get a kind of a kick out of because I think essentially it means you're telling me that if there's nothing that, does, that passes gas on the red planet, then there's nothing alive there. Uh, it's kind of reassurance to me. Um, I, I needed to check this with one of you, uh, one of our UW astronomers. And I said, and, I, and he said, oh, George, George, we don't talk about passing gas. We call it enteric fermentation. <laughs> so, you know, I, I am learning something from astronomy. Um, but here's the thing. We, join me. Over the last nine weeks, we have been searching for life, haven't we? A series, sermon series called Alive in Christ. We're studying the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, looking for life in Christ. It's not always so easy to identify. Sometimes it's a bit ethereal, and we need to look for a marker. We need to look for a sign of life. After all, it's possible we uh, might not know whether we have this life or not. We might um, think we don't have life because we look at the way we live and we think, oh my goodness, it's a little rocky. It's not so pretty, so I must not have the life that Christ promises. Or we might think we have the life, and we might be wrong. We might think we might life because we're in church all the time or we live with people that have the life or we talk like somebody who has the life or we're just a lively personality, whatever. And so how do you know? Well, as we come to a close here in this series today, I want to be as simple and as clear and direct as I possibly can in, in helping you know whether or not you have the life that Jesus promises. Because I want to be really clear with you that Jesus came to give you life. That's his mission. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly, Jesus says, John 10.10. 10. And the Apostle Paul, when he characterizes the quality of his life, would use the phrase, alive in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.22. I'm alive in Christ. He speaks of a life that has a, a kind of quality that's like everything that God is. Speaks of a life that has a kind of duration. It's like the duration of God's life. It's eternal, abundant life. Do I have it? Is it in me? Am I alive in Christ? Well, how would you know? There's no more important question that a human being could ever ask of themselves. And the best way to get the answer is to look for that marker. To look for that sign of life. What is it? What's the sign? Well, the Apostle Paul, as he winds to the end of this great letter in which he's urging the Galatians not to miss it, arrives at this great climax in Galatians chapter 6, and he identifies the sign in no uncertain terms. For Paul, the sign is the cross. You look to history. You look for the cross of Jesus Christ and the way in which you relate to that sign indicates to you whether you've got the life that Jesus promises. So let's look at this. Would you open up your Bible to Galatians chapter 6, 
verse 14. I've actually changed the text. I threw out my sermon Thursday night because I thought this is more important. We're just going to look at one verse, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. It's on page 949. If you're able, would you stand with me? And uh, let's read this one verse aloud together. Galatians 6, verse 14. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. It should sound odd to you. Boast in the cross? Well, it was as strange in the ancient world as it is today. Mid-19th century archaeologists in Rome found a bit of graffiti that today we call the Alexamenos Graffito. And I want to show you a picture of this. This is uh, not the actual graffiti. This is a sketch because it's a little bit hard to see. It was just carved in the stone of a, uh, a lower chamber. And it was carved presumably by a Roman slave who lived or worked in that chamber. The picture has two figures on it. On the left, we have a, a, a man whose arms are raised up. It looks like a gesture of worship. A right and to, the, uh, to the right and above, we have another figure. It's the body of a human on a cross. But you look closely and you see it's the head of a donkey. And then there's an inscription. There's some writing there. Well, we don't really know what this is. This is all we have. There's no backstory to this. But scholars uh, have filled in some of the details. And the consensus is that this probably is some religious satire. It's a little cartoon. It's a, 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 a gesture of ridicule. I think there might have been two um, slaves. One, a pagan slave, and the other, a Christian slave. We don't know the name of the pagan slave, but the name of the Christian slave was likely Alexamenos. Because when you read the inscription, it says Alexamenos worships his God. A man on a cross with the head of a donkey. This whole story is ridiculous. Somebody thinks. And so, when the Apostle Paul says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you say to yourself, you know, the cross, I, don't, I never quite understood that. Know that you're in good company. Nobody has ever understood the cross. Nobody's ever been able to make sense of it unless it's the one thing that makes sense of everything else. One man ridicules, another man worships. To one, it is a marker of shame. To the other, it is a marker of vindication. To one, it's a sign of death. To another, it's a sign of life. And what's the difference? Paul says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to this cross, let's think for a minute about who's on the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that who hangs there in first century Palestine? Well, it's a man, uh, a person like any other person, a regular person. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. If you were to walk by the street today, you wouldn't notice anything different about him. He'd just look like you or anybody else who's there, and yet he was a person who ate the daily bread of toil, 
who shared the common miseries of life. He was a person for whom the world had no place. And after only 33 years, his life was brought to an end by some strange act of political intrigue. He was raised up outside the city walls between two common criminals. Now, this happened a lot in Palestine. A few decades later, we were told by the Jewish Roman historian Josephus that to suppress the insurrection of the Jews, the Romans were crucifying more than 500 Jews a day. So many that they were denuding the forests of Palestine. They were running out of wood or places to place these horrible, miserable crucifixes. And Jesus is one of them, one of so many, in shame, cursed, cast out, despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. Who's on the cross? A man like me. A man like you. But that's not all who's on the cross. Because as Jesus expires, one of those Roman soldiers about whom Josephus tells us about gasps in a moment. He reacts to the death of Jesus Christ like he has never reacted to who knows how many thousands of Jews who've died. When this Roman soldier looks up in that moment into the face of this man, Jesus Christ, he said, truly, this must be the Son of God. And it's the confession of all Christians that this is so. That this is not just a man on the cross, that this is God himself. That this is the creator of life itself who has come and entered into time and space because the world that he made in love while it has degenerated through its own rebellion into desperate, disastrous violence and despair is still his world his world to love and it's broken but he loves it still and so he comes taking on flesh this God man comes and walks among us not just to teach wisely not just to perform signs but ultimately to die on a cross because God comes to make things right on the cross. He comes to bring his justice. But he knows that the world cannot afford to bear the justice it deserves in its rebellion. So he stands beneath the judgment himself. He absorbs the just penalty for sin and rebellion and evil himself. He goes to hell so that all of us can go to heaven. This is grace. The cross is grace, complete grace. That's what God has for you this morning. Grace. I want you to absorb the grace of the cross. I want you to take it in and make it your own through a simple act of faith this morning. Grace is God sharing our sin. He shares our sin so that we can share his life in order to share hope in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I boast, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Who is the person who's crucified on the cross? Well, it is man, it is God. But interestingly enough, Paul seems to write as though he himself were present there. Of course, he wasn't, but by faith, he has come to see himself between those horrible transepts. I boast, I have been crucified to the world, he tells us. He's already told us that in Galatians 2.19. He must really believe it. For Paul, it's not enough to know that there is a cross in history. There must also be a cross in your life. For Paul, the objective truth of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has no personal relevance until it's our personal truth. And so he says, I have been crucified. There are two things that he mentions here. I've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. I think in a sense what he's saying is there's a cross between me and God. I've been crucified. And there's a cross between me and the world. The world's been crucified to me. To say that there's a cross between me and God is to say that I will no longer need to relate to God in any way other than such as signified by this cross. Forgiveness of my sins. Complete forgiveness for your sins. Past, present, and future are all there on the cross. Everything. Paul knows he has an ugly history. He calls himself the chief of all sinners. Do you know why? Paul's a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. When one day Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ, appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Paul, who was then Saul, um, why are you persecuting me? He has an ugly history, and yet all of it is on the cross, nailed there. He also has an impressive history. And I think when Paul says, the world has been crucified to me, he's saying, you know what, I will live differently because now I, I know that there's a cross between me and the world and the, the, the performance demands of the world. Do you ever notice how many demands that the world makes of you? And they've internalized them and you make them of yourself? And the Paul says, I, I, the world has been crucified to me. It's, that whole order is gone. I live in a new order of grace. And that's so important because it's not just that Paul has an ugly history, he also has an impressive history. And for many of us, it's our impressive history that keeps us from the grace of God. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says, hey, if anyone else has reason to be confident or to boast in the flesh, it'd be me. And then he lists his spiritual resume. So I've been, all these are good things. I've been circumcised on the eighth day, member of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, that's the good tribe, Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, that was really good in his mind, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, hey, I get rid of these pesky Christians, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, all of my righteousness, all of my successes, all of that, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I boast in the cross. I live with God because God died for me. I'm alive in Christ, Christ in me because of the cross. So I ask myself, do I have this life? Do I have this life? Well, if I do, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I come to church. It's not because I'm nice or I try to be a good person or I pray. It's not because 
people like me or respect me. It's not because of my engagement with the American dream and my success, my health or my happiness or my home. It's none of those things. If I have this life in Christ, if I'm alive in Christ, it's only because of what the cross has come to mean to me. It's because of grace. I'm no better than the Apostle Paul, and yet he needed grace. I'm no worse than the Apostle Paul, and yet, he, uh, and, and yet grace was sufficient for him. I want to read you a letter that I received two weeks ago from a woman that to me describes what it's like to live with this grace, what it's like to live with the cross. It's a long letter, but let me just read to you. This is one of you. This is a mother who's struggling to live. She writes, about a, half, a year and a half ago, we welcomed our second son into our life. And though he brought much joy, I was stretched and challenged in ways I had never been before. Exhausted and tired, I found myself snapping at my husband, becoming short and impatient with our firstborn son, and just about angry all the time. I hated the way I responded in anger all the time and vowed every morning that this morning I would be different. This day I would be kind, patient, understanding. But as the day would go on and day-to-day challenges faced by a stay-at-home mom grew, my temper flared. I had trouble sleeping at night because I kept rehearsing the harsh words I had spoken to our oldest. I lay in guilt and frustration with myself. All the other moms around me held it all together, but not me. I listed excuses if I had family close by to help, or if I wasn't at home, or if my second wasn't colicky, stubborn, fussy, or if my first wasn't so needy, then I would be different. But the problem wasn't my kids or my situation. The problem was me. The problem was my heart. The anger and patience and kindness that was showing up in my life was just an outpouring of the ugliness of my heart, the sin that was so deeply entangling. Now, I knew I was a sinner. I realized that over 15 years ago in college, and I knew that I had been forgiven. But somewhere along the line, I began to think that I was fixed, that I had it all together, that once you're a believer, you shouldn't struggle with sin. But Galatians reminded me that we still struggle, that as believers, we don't have it all together. And that doesn't mean we aren't saved. Or that God is with us, isn't with us even as we sin. He hasn't abandoned me. And that brought me so much peace, so much hope. No longer was it, I'm a bad mom or I'm a bad wife or I'll never measure up, but I'm a sinner. And that brought hope because it also means I'm forgiven. That Jesus took care of that sin, that anger, impatience, and selfishness on the cross. It was wiped clean. And it means that he who has started a good work in me will bring it to completion, that he won't abandon me to sin, but is working in me to make me more like Jesus. No longer was I emotionally beating myself up at the end of the day, shaming myself for the words I spoke. No longer was I facing the day determined to do better, but rather knowing I am inadequate. I know his Holy Spirit is with me, guiding me, helping me, wanting me to change. And that my identity isn't bad mom, but chosen daughter of the Holy Father. And strangely enough, my words to my sons have become more loving, more kind. I'm even slightly more patient. And all that started not just because I was focusing on the behavior, 
uh, the fruit. I had tried that for the last year and it wasn't working. But because I was now focusing on my heart and my need for Jesus, my inadequacy and my sin, and somehow Jesus brought fruit out of all of that all by himself. This is the power of the cross that allows us to acknowledge our inability and hold on to his ability, his grace in our lives. Now, it's hard to see. You know, this woman might be sitting right next to you and, 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 and you might look very different. Lots of things are similar about both of you. I mean, it's true that you're beloved of God. God made you. It's true that God is calling you to his grace as Paul writes in the first chapter of Galatians. It's true that you both know how to dream. It's true that you both know the disappointments of broken dreams. It's true that you both know joy and you both know pain. You might have both gone through the same stuff, the migraines, the miscarriages, the difficult relationships with mother. But there is one difference, and that is this woman has the cross of Jesus Christ in her life. And that one difference is the difference that makes all the difference. That's the difference that opens us up to eternal and abundant life in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, I boast in that. Now what's this boast? He doesn't just have the life at the cross. He boasts in the life at the cross. Well, some people read this superficially and think, oh, boasting is bad. This is wrong. But Paul's saying, no, it's, he's not. He's saying boasting is actually good. There are two different meanings for the biblical language of boasting. Joseph Zmiuski points them out. One is to brag, and that's a negative meaning. And the other is to take pride in, a very positive thing. Zmiuski writes, in boasting, the individual declares what he relies on and what is his support in life, i.e. what his life is built on. In that sense, everybody boasts. The question is, what are you boasting in? Everybody has something on which it's, their lives are supported or founded. Somebody who boasts in the cross is just making explicit the fact that their life is founded on the cross, that their foundation is the cross, that the source of life for them is the cross. We could boast in anything and everything else, but Paul says, I boast in the cross, which is another way of saying, I have faith in the cross. I put my weight on the cross. I live by faith in the cross. See, true life, abundant life, eternal life is not an achievement, which is the, what the world has told you. It's a gift. And God wants to give it to you, no strings attached. And you can receive that gift, you must receive that gift by a simple act of faith. That's why Paul says it in a different way in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's boasting. That's a simple act of response, of faith to God's grace. So that no one should boast in themselves, but it's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Now, I want to invite you this morning just to know that you've it come to that point of faith before the cross of Jesus Christ. Some of you have, many of you have, but some of you have not. And I would just pray that today would be the day. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to get past this series without everybody re being really clear that they've had an opportunity to come before the cross of Jesus Christ 
and make their response to his grace. You'll choose what you'll choose, but the Apostle Paul, after he's arguing for the good news of gospel, it's not good advice, it's good news. And he says, all you have to do is believe it, have faith in it. And it's yours, eternal life is yours. You're alive through faith. When he was 71 years old, the Swiss pastor and theologian Karl Barth stood in prison. He was in a prison cell in Basel, I believe. And he looked around the room and he saw the men who were there, every one of them a convict. And it was Good Friday and he opened up his Bible and he read for them the text for the day, which was Luke 23, 33. And he said, they crucified him with the criminals, one on either side of him. And then he looked around the room at those men, eyeball to eyeball. And he repeated, they crucified him with the criminals. And then he asked them a question. Which is more amazing to find Jesus in such bad company or to find criminals in such good company? And he argued for those men that on Golgotha, that hill that had three crosses, there God had chosen for himself his first Christian community. That God had chosen the fellowship, the koinonia of criminals. That God had come to be with these men in their shame, to bind himself to their shame, to take it into himself. He did what he did, Jesus, for them. Everything he did was for them. He came for this moment to die with them, but not just with them, for them. And you might remember, there were two different uh, criminals and responses to Jesus, the man on the middle cross. On the one hand, there was someone who ridiculed Jesus. To him, a dying Messiah was absolute foolishness, and he mocked him. But on the other side, there was another man who worshipped. Equally as guilty, and yet possessing of some faith, some small modicum of faith, he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just that much faith because of this much grace gets you all the way in a minute I'm going to offer a closing prayer and you do what you will with it but I want to invite you in fact I'd like to beg you to address your prayer yourself personally to Jesus to speak to the man on the middle cross I don't know how this works but we could imagine that thief on the third cross waking up later that afternoon in paradise. And let's imagine there's somebody with a clipboard who usually does the intake, you know, and he says, so, why are you here? Uh, you must have been a very excellent fellow. Live a good life? He says, no, actually, I was a criminal. Oh, well, you must have made amends and, re and repented and offered restitution. No, I didn't really have time for that. They killed me pretty quick. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, the guy's interview asks all these questions, like, how good are you? And how do you, how do you what in the world are you doing here? And uh, he would say, I imagine, you know, I really have no idea what I'm doing here. 
other than that the fellow on the middle cross said he'd meet me here. And I believed him. And so today I want to invite you to speak to the fellow on the middle cross who is making a date with you today. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till you die to have eternal life. You can have it today. And I also want to ask you to take an, an, an action. Uh, if you would, would you let me know if you have new faith in Jesus Christ today, I want you to know you're a Christian because of that. And I'd like to help you understand how it is you can begin and understand the fullness of this new relationship with God in Jesus Christ. So I'll personally make uh, sure that somebody follows up with you. Just uh, take one of the cards out of the pew rack, put on it, uh, trusted Christ, or check a box if there is one there. Put contact information on, give it to me in the back, or uh, take it to the welcome kiosk, or slyly leave it on the pew behind as you uh, slip out of here later today. If you're uh, wanting to renew your faith in Jesus Christ, to live before this cross then I invite you to take the bulletin home. You'll notice that there's a little image of the cross on the cover. You might want to write your name on that cross. Or this week, is there one area of your life where you really need to know again that you've been crucified with Christ? An area that you're struggling with. You might write that area on the cross and you might put the bulletin this week wherever you're most tempted to face that struggle. Maybe it's a dashboard of your car. Maybe you tape it to your computer screen. Maybe it's on the refrigerator. Wherever you need to put it, you put it there. There was another chamber in Rome, right next to the one where they found the Alexamenos Graffito. And there was another inscription in the next room. It was written in a different hand, so we don't think it was written by the man who was ridiculing. It might have been written by someone who knew Alexamenos. It might have been written by Alexamenos himself. And it said this, two words, Alexamenos Fidelis. Alexamenos is faithful. This is a man who lives by grace through faith. The one who worships at the cross is alive in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we don't need to raise our voices. We don't need to use our voices at all. Because from the heights of heaven, you have sent your Holy Spirit who searches the mind of man and woman and you know our thoughts and you know what we feel. Your word promises us that you come to each and every one of us to call us into your grace. And so we're here before you. Make up our minds. Lord Jesus, we don't pretend to have all of our questions answered or to be special people in ourselves. But this morning, we have heard that your cross is for us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Come into our lives and give us the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And give us an assurance with that, that we this day have responded to your gift and that you being faithful have given it to us in full for all of eternity. And as all of us go from this place, eager to live before the cross with more freedom, with more joy, with more life and vitality, we pray that you'll take that one area that the Holy Spirit will surface in our minds and meet us there and crucify it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio. 
Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.